Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? On the one hand, when we summarize the book of Hosea, we can say it's a book that's very much against idolatry. I guess that's one way of saying it. But it's sort of a a way of, of missing the passion of God, isn't it? Because it's not so much that the Lord is so concerned about their idolatry, and I know that sounds strange, but it's more a concern that his people do not understand who is the giver of all good things. So yeah, idolatry is obviously a problem. It's obviously contrary to worshiping the true God. But the, the real issue of what's going on with the frustration of God is he's laying out his case in chapter 13 where all the Lord has done is trying to give his people what they want. Delivered them, redeemed them, provided for them, gave them everything they needed, even provided an overabundance. And what do they do? They trust in everything but the living God. And that's really the the summary of what Hosea is getting at with his people, that the Lord in his providence is not some flippant, petty being that just wants to smite people because he can or it's fun. But he's a God who truly wants his people to be as passionate for him as he is for them. When we look at this history in the summary of the Lord's frustration of Israel, we really can understand why the Lord is so frustrated. Again, there's really nothing that's new in chapter 13 that we haven't heard before in the prophet. But this is where the Lord's starting to wind down his case and really just just summarize, this is why I'm really upset with you. It's sort of how we can take chapter 13. I want you to understand why I'm upset with my people. And so when we look at this, we can ask, you know, do we just learn that the Lord is upset so we can try and do better and maybe do better than Israel? I mean, obviously, we, we want to say there's more to it than just that. Or is there something we take from this where we just try to find some encouragement as well? I mean, if you look at a lot of Hosea, it's not a book that, like I've mentioned before, In the midst of a crisis, probably not the prophet you turn to in terms of a whole book that you're going to read. And so what what do we really take from this that's encouraging? So as we look at this, we'll see first Israel's vanity. Secondly, Israel's vanishing where the Lord's going to basically make them go away. And ultimately Israel vanquished where the Lord is promising they will be done. So as we look at this, we see first Israel's vanity. So basically verses 1 through 3. When we look at verses 1 through 3, this is really where the Lord is making the point that Israel is vain. And when you look at the word for vanity from Ecclesiastes and wisdom literature, vanity just means a breath. So it's something that's here, something that's gone, and certainly something that Hosea picks up. We're talking about Israel's vanity. Verses 1 through 3 is where the Lord is just bringing up, you're going to be here, and then you're not going to be here. 
Uh, and it's going to disappear as quickly as a breath uh, that, that we can see. I mean, you can certainly see it when it's cold, right? You breathe out, you can see your breath, and then it's gone. It just gets absorbed into the air and goes away. And so when we look at this, this nature, we look at verse 1. And the Lord recalls for us when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. And so right here, there, there's an exaltation of Ephraim. And it's an important history as the Lord plays on Israel, plays on Jacob. And now he's playing on Ephraim, reminiscing, you know, the exalted position of his people. And you think of the history of, of Ephraim. We've mentioned that Ephraim and Israel are parallel. We see this in Hosea 5.3, 5 verse 5. Chapter 5 goes on to Ephraim and Judah. So Ephraim a lot of times has been used synonymously with Israel. Here it's used reminding us of Israel, being in the place of his people, but being sort of the top of God's people in the ideal. Ephraim was uh, the son that was the ultimate exalted son. So we say, well, how do we get there? Well, we think of Genesis 48 and that remarkable blessing. Jacob, the heel grabber, supplanter, which has already been pointed out uh, last week when Hosea went through Jacob's history, the, the schemer. And now we, we have that recollection of Jacob at the end of his life, crossing his hand so Ephraim receives a greater blessing than Manasseh. And even Joseph, his favored son, says, no, no, dad, you got it backwards. Because the right-handed blessing is a better blessing, right? So the, the right-hand man's a superior man. Benjamin, son of my right hand, another favored son. His, his name commemorates favoritism in the family. And so the, the reality of this is that when you have Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, giving Ephraim the greater blessing, even though he's a younger, is a promise of Ephraim ultimately being exalted, increasing, uh, which is what Ephraim means, that he's the increasing one, the greater one. Going on then, we think of Judges 7 and 8 where we have Gideon, sort of the, the judge who kind of hides himself. He doesn't really want to engage in conflict. Uh, and then when he wins, he all of a sudden garnishes himself uh, with uh, vestments that, that proclaim his excellence, right? That's, that's what we think of with Gideon. But Gideon is one, when he goes to war, he doesn't initially invite Ephraim to come out. And so in Judges 7 and 8, you know, Ephraim confronts him and says, hey, Why'd you call us after the battle? We wanted to fight and, and engage in the integrity for God, right? So they're presented right there as very zealous, upset that, you know, Gideon would dare to forget them in terms of the battle invitation. Joshua, from the tribe of Ephraim, right? The man whose name means Yahweh saves, a man who stood strong against the spies, a man of integrity, a man who stands there at the end of his book giving the, the declaration that we're going to serve the Lord as for me and my house. You people do what you want, but no matter what, we are serving the Lord. So a, a man of integrity. And then you have Jeroboam, the one who goes against the whole trend of the Ephraimites who introduces idolatry and a division of the kingdom. And you think of that tragedy, and that's what the Lord's saying. He's saying, what happened to you? All these years, all these generations, you were a people who fought for me. 
wanted my integrity, wanted to passionately pursue me and had zeal for me, and then you just chuck it all away. And you take that zeal and you turn it into these, these silly, silly golden calves. And so the Lord says, well, what do I do with this? Going on then in verse 2, he, he makes this more explicit. Because now in verse 2, as there are ones that give their way over to Baal worship and immorality, we have this presentation now of what's going on. They sin, they make for themselves mental images, they make for themselves gods. And this is really the absurdity of idolatry that the Lord's calling to our attention again in verse 2. It's the craftsmen who make the gods. It's the skilled ones, the skilled metal workers who make the gods. Where does Scripture open? It opens with the Word of God. It opens with the Word uh, making a declaration and bringing this creation into being. And then the Lord gets down and he creates man, doesn't he? And as he creates man, he forms him out of the dust. There's a personal creation like a craftsman, and he breathes the breath of life into man. Man did not create God. That's what the, the Lord's pointing out here. He goes, look, look at what you've done. You think, look at us. We're these prestigious people. We create our own gods. And he's saying, don't you realize the absurdity of that? If you have to dust your God, if you have to protect your God, if you have to build a fortress for your God, if you have to fashion your God, well, then who's the God there? It's not the God that you're protecting. It's the God you've created. And is it really a God? No, you're the God trying to make a God you can control and lead around. And that's why, in terms of verse 2, if you notice that when I read this, I changed the translation a little bit from the ESV. It's a debated translation, but a more consistent and clearer way of translating this from the Septuagint is men sacrifice. So it's calling attention. Men sacrifice, they kiss the calves. So if you remember the challenge between Baal and the true God where with Elijah or on Mount Carmel when they get together and they have this competition, right? Who are the prophets who are not executed? The ones who did not kiss the calves, the the gods of Baal, the golden calf. So this seems to be a, a recollection, a description of what people do when they engage in Baal worship. So they sacrifice, and you think, oh, that's great, they're sacrificing. But they kiss the calves. In other words, they're sacrificing to the false gods, to the false lord, to Baal. So now the, the Lord uses these three metaphors of what Israel is going to be like, and it's kind of scary. Because we have here the mist. So the morning mist would be basically like the morning fog would be a way of bringing this into our, our English. It's, you think of the fog in the morning on, on a sort of a coolish day. As the sun comes out, the fog goes away. And if you're outside doing your tasks and doing your work, you may not even notice the fog going away. You're busy doing your task. All of a sudden you look out and go, huh, fog's gone, right? It just kind of goes away. And that's the imagery that Hosea is calling to our mind of Israel. At one point, they're there. It's inconvenient. It's not very nice. You get busy with life, and all of a sudden you go, huh, where'd it go? And that's what Israel's going to be like. The chaff on the threshing floor is uh, where you basically, you know, you separate the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff goes away as you throw it up in the air, and it just blows away. It's gone. It's there one moment. It's an inconvenience, and then it's gone. Uh, the imagery of the smoke with the window would be 
uh, basically like a smokestack that we would have. It would be a hole in the roof or a hole in the wall where one would have the fire to cook. Uh, the smoke from the fire would go out of the house so it doesn't fill the house with smoke, and it goes out through that hole. So yeah, it's kind of like a window, but it's not really a window. It's more like what we would say in our day and age, like a smokestack. And so it's that smoke that's there with the fire goes out of the house. You watch it go out of the house, fire goes out, and it's gone. It's no longer there. And so the Lord's saying this is what he's vowing to do to Israel. They engage, sort of in the irony of their vanity, vanity of vanities, all of life is vanity, Ecclesiastes, breath, breath, all of life is but a breath. And so as Israel engages in the things that give them comfort in this age, they're going to be there one moment, prestigious, and then nothing. They started great, and then nothing. Had a zeal for the Lord, and then nothing. Is a warning of what's going on, and the Lord's going to make this a, a communal exile that you have what's going on here with, you know, that typology and all those things with Israel. But going on, when you think about Israel truly vanishing in verses 4 through 8, that here you, you have this recollection of who God is. He's a God who blesses his people, right? I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. Recalling for us Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. How the Lord has that affection. You think of Hosea 2, how the Lord's going to find his people in the wilderness. He's going to woo them. He's going to bring them back like he did one time. And so there's that wonderful, sentimental, lovely, truly just a, a, affection for one another. The Lord leading Israel, leading them like a great eagle, leading them through the wilderness, caring for them, nurturing them, seeing to it that all their needs are met, showing them that not only is God greater than the superpowers of this age, something for us to remember, no superpower is going to overpower him or thwart him, no matter how strong or powerful we may perceive them to be, no one is going to usurp the Lord. That's what he taught them. He overpowered the Egyptians. But you have to understand, in the ancient Near East, there's something else that's rather profound about this. Because in the ancient Near East, the, the mindset is when you get closer to a holy land, you get closer to the deity. And so obviously, it's, they, they sort of view the gods like we would view a radio signal, right? The closer you get to a tower, the stronger the signal. The further away you get from the tower, you might have a signal, but it's not very strong. So you want to stay close to the tower, close to the place of the strong signal. Well, that's the mindset of the gods. The closer you are to the Holy Land, the stronger that God is, the, the more likely it is he's able to save you. The further you get away, well, he might have his hand on you, but you don't really know how strong he is. Well, the beauty of what the Lord is teaching us in the Exodus and, his, and, and the Israelites is that the gods of Egypt are no match for him. Even though he has to bring them out of this superpower's land, across the wilderness, through a sea, into the promised land, the superpower of Egypt, no match for him. The gods of Egypt, no match for him. Even the magicians tried to, to compete with him, and they couldn't compete. Eventually, they had to recognize that, that they're no power compared to God. He's the ultimate triumphant one. And so the, the Lord says, there is no other Savior. You, you knew I was the one. I saved you. There was no question about it. 
God's people panicked. Even Moses started to panic. And the Lord brought them through the sea. So we know this history. It's an intention for us to meditate on this history. Think about all the implications of it is what Hosea is inviting us to do here. Going on in, in verse 5, it was the Lord who knew them in the land of drought. Think about how he's presenting the wilderness. We've talked about the wilderness being a place of reshaping where he woos his people. The wilderness a place of testing as Hebrews presents it. But here the Lord's recalling a very fundamental problem for humanity, isn't it? The Lord knows who we are. And he knows for us to, to exist on a basic level, just to, on a basic level to have life. Not even talking about spiritual life at this point. But just to have life. That we need water. And without water, we're going to die. And he presents the wilderness as a place of death, a place of drought. Now you also think about water being a place of new life, of the redemptive event through the Red Sea, and how there's nothingness, and how the Lord is able to take them in a land of nothingness, a land of death, a land where you expect spiritual turmoil and no peace at all. And the Lord recreates his people in the midst of that. That's what the Lord also wants us to think of. He says, think about the wilderness, a place you associate with death, a place where you do not think about it in terms of this baptismal ordeal or a place of reshaping or a place of reforming his people. It's a place where you go and you die. But the Lord brought them through there. He provided for them, saw to it that all their needs were met. He cared for them. The Lord goes on and say, now, notice what I've done for you. I lead you. Now he goes on in verse 6, and he's presenting Israel, you know, as, as a great shepherd and, you know, moving his cattle from place to place. And notice what happens now with the people of God, that, that in the recollection of what the Lord makes, here I am, I deliver you, I bring you, bring you out of a land of death, I provide for you, you, you find green pastures, you, you feed, you, you get fat, you get full, and all of a sudden you start saying what? Oh, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at who I am. This is what lifted up means. Lifted up is not in the sense of like Moses lifting up his hands to the Lord or Aaron giving a benediction of lifting his hands unto the Lord. The lifted up here is lifted up in the sense of pride, in the sense of self-sufficiency, in a, in a sinful way of completely forsaking God. And he's saying, and that's what you've done. Your heart gets full. You say, look at what I've done. Look at who I am and they forget the Lord. So the Lord's saying, I'm not the one who has failed to show you my faithfulness. I continue to lead you. I brought you into the promised land. I brought you through this time. You're the ones who forgot me. And so the Lord's saying, understand the relationship here. So now we have what I'd argue is at least a pun uh, as the Lord's playing on a concept in verse 7 uh, and also in verse uh, eight, where the Lord is the one who's coming against them. Uh, this notion of a lion, that the Lord, as he devours them, you know, verse seven, verse eight, he mentions lion twice, which seems to be Hosea wanting to call to our attention a lion. And we say, well, why, well, why a lion? Well, we know a lion is a rather intimidating animal. I mean, none of us want to get into a cage with a lion uh, unarmed or unprepared. <laughs> I mean, that's a rather frightening thing if you look a lion in the eye and think about who's going to walk out of that and be okay. It's probably not you. 
And so when Hosea presents the lion, it's a ferocious lion. It's almost a lion presented like in Genesis 49, of the lion of Judah. And how you think about who God is as that ferocious lion who is the one where no one would dare to rouse him after a meal. So after he has a big meal, he's so scary, no one wants to come before this Lord. Hosea now is presenting a flip side of this lion. And he's presenting the, the instruction kind of like what John the Baptist says, right? This is where we can understand John's warning. And it's an important warning because if we miss the warning, we, we miss the significance of our redemption. And so the, the presentation is this lion. We can think of the lion of Judah, John the Baptist saying to Israel, repent, turn unto the Lord. Uh, he's the one that's going to come against you if you don't turn unto him. Don't say we have Abraham as our father, we have the prophets. In other words, don't rest in some history, genealogy, or just a, a blanket covenant um, uh, refuge that you're going to try to take refuge in. You need to embrace the substance of the covenantal promise. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Here's the Messiah. Don't say, oh, no, we're all doing it right. He's saying, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not doing it right. You need to turn to the Messiah and embrace Christ. And that's a warning here, where Hosea is saying, now the Lord, who is the mighty lion, who is going to deliver his people, like the lion of Judah, who's going to stand up as a triumphant one against all those who, who rile you up or try to destroy you, is on that same lion who's coming against the people of God, national Israel, in their unique land, in their unique time. And so it's showing us that reminder that just because we might think that we're part of the, the covenantal identity, the call is that we truly embrace the Christ of the covenant, that we don't just rest in our tradition, we don't just rest in our works. And again, tradition's important, not denying those things, not denying a, a call to raise up our children to covenantal blessings or to learn our catechism or things like that. I'm not here speaking down about those things. But what I am warning is that we don't just trust in those things and say because we do the right system, therefore we're serving the right God. What Hosea is saying is you need to embrace the right Christ. That's what Hosea is warning Israel of. They, they can say, oh, we worship, we sacrifice, we're good. And Hosea is saying, what are you doing? You're kissing the calves. You're incorporating false worship into true worship. Worship the true God. That's the call here. So when he gives this warning about the lion coming against his people, it, it is something that's rather sober. This is the lion of Judah who's supposed to defend, who's now coming against the people to bring them out of the land so they shouldn't see the Assyrians coming against them as something that's arbitrary. This is by the hand of God. Now the, the fierceness of this is rather scary. The leopard. I mean... All you have to do is watch a house cat and you understand how scary these things are, right? Even a little house cat. You don't want to be a mouse. You don't want to be a cricket. You don't want to be something where the cat is walking alongside and watching it. Uh, sometimes you can go into the hills. You can even have sort of that eerie feeling that something's watching you. Go down a little further and you see the tracks and you recognize there was something watching you. But it was lurking from a distance. That's the point of this leopard, how the Lord's going to be like a leopard. You, you think he's not there, 
but yet he's watching from a distance. You know, it's used in the context of uh, the one who sets a snare trap, right? So he's a fowler who watches from a distance, sees who trips the trap, and then grabs uh, what he has captured in that trap as he's been watching. So that's the picture here, that the Lord is one's kind of lurking beside. We don't think he's there, but he's there watching. And so Hosea is saying, watch out, all of a sudden it's upon you and you don't know it. So that's another uh, driving home of this metaphor. Then he goes on to talk about the she-bear, where you think of Elijah in 2 Kings 2 verse 19 with the uh, children that mock Elijah. And all of a sudden the she-bear comes out of the, the woods, robbed of its cubs, and all of a sudden it rises up and, and devours uh, these children who heckle. And so that's what Hosea is saying. He's saying, listen, when these Assyrians fall upon you, it's going to be quick, it's going to be brutal, it's going to be painful. But don't think that God did not warn you. The Lord made it clear. You are facing exile, and you are going out. You will be destroyed. Going on then, we think about this, and we think, okay, well, well what about this Israel being vanquished? As we look at verses 9 through 11. When you hear this, this too is not something nice. Because the Lord goes on now to say, listen, if you're mad at me, let's, let's recall some more of history, shall we? He's, where Israel's going to say, oh, well, the Lord's coming against me. What do we do? And the Lord says, okay, where's your helper? You're the ones that wanted a helper, and you wanted a helper other than God, right? They're looking at Egypt, looking at Assyria, thinking maybe these other nations will be able to protect them and, and, and preserve them, and they find that it doesn't work out so well. But the Lord says, well, what did you ask in terms of your history? And so the Lord here recalls the very history of Israel where Samuel warns them. Samuel told them, you don't want a king. King is going to take your sons and daughters, send them into war. He's going to attack you to death. He's going to take your land. You don't want a king. He's going to engage in, in wars. He's going to raise your taxes. He's going to take more and more and more for his own endeavors. And what did Israel say? But we want a king like the nations. We want a king to lead us into battle. So Samuel goes to the Lord and says, I don't know what to do about this. Uh, people want a king. And the Lord says, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I warn them. Samuel warns them. They continue on saying they want a king. So the Lord's recalling to Israel where he says, I gave you what you wanted. I told you you didn't want this. I told you that. I made it clear, I am your king, right? You look at the division of the books of the Psalms, that's where you get basically book three, the angst of what do we do, Solomon's apostate, book four, God's our king, book five, we live in light of our Lord being our king, right? So you can see the Psalter being arranged in this way, instructing Israel, instructing the Lord's people, really, that the Lord is our king. So the Lord's saying, well, why don't you call on your king? Oh, that's right. I told you you didn't want that king, and I'm your king, and you need to learn this. Going on then, the Lord says, I gave you a king in my anger. I took the king away. And so when the Lord is making all this claim, he's saying, this is what you wanted. I gave you what you wanted. And what do Israel continue to say? They say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 1 Samuel 8, 
verses 19 through 20. So you think about that declaration and how the Lord is now taunting Israel. I gave you the king. You said you wanted the king to save you. Well, where's your king that's going to save you now? He's not here. Unfortunately, Israel had to learn the hard answer, didn't they? But they had to learn the answer that their king is not their savior. Only the Lord is their true Israel, or their true savior, the true one who prevails. And so when the Lord says, I gave you a king in my anger, I took the king away in my wrath. It's the Lord showing Israel, basically it's the Lord at this point saying, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. This was going to be the case. And so now the Lord is saying, you're going to learn that I am your king. And so when we look at this, we might say, well then, how is it that when the Lord's so upset with Israel, that we want to turn to the Lord, right? How, are, are we just learning, just trying to do better? Is that really the, the lesson we take from this? I mean, is there really any encouragement we can have in the midst of this. Well, I think what we learn, and one of the things Israel certainly teaches us, we're not going to bring heaven on earth. We failed. We wanted to live in a sinful world, and the Lord gave us exactly what we wanted. That's the tragedy of the human condition. We made it ourselves. And so the, the reality is we, we have to embrace that humbling reality. When the Lord brings Israel into the land, gives them everything they need once again to build heaven on earth, they fail. He even gives them a thing that they can add to their own strategy of a king, and they still fail. Even though the Lord said, I am sufficient as your king. And so what do we take from this in terms of encouragement? Because if we're left there, it doesn't seem very encouraging. Well, as Hosea goes on, and as we'll cover more in the upcoming weeks, the assurance is that the Lord is still with his people. The very fact that Hosea still addresses the people reminds us of the Lord's passion for his people, right? When someone stops fighting for something, we know the person is, is done with that particular thing. Whatever, go on, right? They've given up. The prophet Hosea in chapter 13 is making clear that God's not done striving and fighting for his people. That's the hope of this. That he's assuring Israel that when I send in the nations to take you away, much like you were in Egypt, you need to learn. You need to learn for sure that I am a God who is beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem, beyond the boundaries of Canaan. You need to understand that I am a God who saves my people. I am not a God who is saved by my people, right? So often we can get that backwards where we think somehow we need to save God or somehow we need to vindicate God. No, God's the Savior. God's the Redeemer. And that's what Hosea 13 in a veiled way is assuring us. That in the midst of a situation that we wanted to live in a sin-cursed world, Israel saying, no, we want a king. It's going to be fine. We want a king. And God's saying, you don't want a king. You have me. You don't need a king. And Israel says, no, no, we, we really want a king like the other nations. God says, fine. It's not going to end well for you. The Lord tells them so. But the Lord doesn't just leave them to meander and wander. 
But even the irony in sending the Assyrians against his people. It is the Lord doing this to bring them out of the land because what has Hosea said? I will woo you in the wilderness. I will bring you back. I will reshape you. I will mold you. I will heal you. This is the assurance we have with our God. Now again, this isn't something where we say, oh, so we just test the boundaries of God's grace. No, don't do that. Because the Assyrian invasions, not, it wasn't fun. It's not something that any of us would want to endure. We, we don't want the Lord to give us what we want. It's what we should also learn from this. But we have to also learn that no matter how far we think we've fallen or how far we think we are beyond his redemption, we can never overreach the mercy, the loving kindness, the steadfast love, the sovereign power of our God. It reaches over the Egyptians, over the Assyrians, over any international power that tries to destroy us. It's the assurance that as we take hold of Christ by faith, that same vicious lion that John the Baptist warns about calls the people to turn to and repent. That vicious lion that comes against his people is also the vicious lion that came against Egypt, also the vicious lion who came against Babylon, also the vicious lion who came against Assyria and delivered his people. The typologies in Scripture is reminding us that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we are those who are tempted to fear everything around us. But what the Lord is saying is, I'm telling you, I am able to save to the uttermost. I am able to bring you into glory. And leave you with the promise he says to Abram. What does he say? Abram, I am your shield and defender. Do not be afraid. In other words, it's the assurance that as our Lord goes before us, he is a mighty warrior king, the mighty redeemer, the one who overcomes all, the mighty deliverer, who will bring us into his rest. Let us then walk by that heavenly wisdom and let us continue to cling to our Redeemer, recognizing that life is found in him. We do not create our God. Our God has created us and recreated us in Christ Jesus. May that be the source of our comfort and hope as we sojourn under the sun. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.